the danger of mistrust is that like most fuel, it's also explosive. And I think that's what's going on in the Republican Party right now. I think the Republican Party has literally exploded into an uncontrollable fire of mistrust. And I'm not sure that there's a good way to, uh, to undo that explosion. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Ethan Zuckerman, is Associate Professor and Director of the Digital Public Infrastructure Initiative at UMass Amherst. He was formerly director of the Center for Civic Media at the MIT Media Lab. He's founded global nonprofits, been a tech entrepreneur, and has wide-ranging interests and expertise in the intersection of the internet and democracy, which makes him a very good guest for this show. We talked about a lot of things, including his book, Mistrust, how losing faith in institutions provides the tools to transform them. He's an interesting guy, and you should listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Ethan Zuckerman. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Ethan, would you mind just introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Ethan Zuckerman. I teach at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I teach in public policy, in communication, and also in information. I am not an academic by training. I'm actually a dot-com guy. I was involved with the early social internet in sort of 1995 through about 2000. And then I moved over to doing a lot of work on technology in the developing world. I ran an NGO. And then I found myself um, increasingly running in sort of academic research circles. I spent time at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center. I finally got an academic appointment over at MIT where I ran a lab there called the Center for Civic Media for about nine years. Uh, and then about two years ago, I left and decamped for our state's leading uh, public university. Sometimes people ask me how I come across my guests. In your case, the answer is the same as with everyone else. My sister met you in Korea. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, that makes sense. I guess you guys were both speaking there about some of the things you have expertise in. And then I also noticed as a matter of just overlap, that you almost overlap with my brother at Williams because he graduated in 89 and I think you came in around then. Sure, that's right. I actually um, moved to the Northern Berkshires in 1989 to start at Williams and I'm still there. I'm um, about 10 miles south of the Williams campus. My son is in the Williamstown Public Schools. So Northwestern Massachusetts is home. I went to 
my brother Ben's uh, graduation there seemed like a lovely campus, lovely small school and, and uh, great, great place to spend time. How were your four years there? I love the town and I love the place. At the end of the day, Williams is complicated. It sends a lot of people into financial services and consulting and sectors of the world that, that I didn't care a whole lot about. I think if you take it in pieces, it's a wonderful place. My community while I was at Williams was the African Dance Ensemble, and I became a fairly good West African hand drummer and ended up uh, after graduation, actually moving to Ghana on a Fulbright fellowship to study uh, xylophone music. So not what I expected to be doing with my early 20s, but wonderful. And, and really thanks to some of those people that I met at Williams. And I think anytime you go to uh, another country and you leave uh, a small elite atmosphere like Williams, you, your eyes open. What, what was the main impact for you of, of that time in Ghana? Well, I think simply put, it was realizing that there are other people in the world who live in entirely different ways than you do. And those ways are legitimate and worthwhile and great and sort of happening in parallel. That's the kind of thing that can be kind of mind blowing when you're 20. Um, you sort of assume that all the world works the same way, that um, you went to school and then you go get a job and it's it's going to be the same thing if you're in Japan or if you're in Germany or if you're in Ghana. And the answer is no, not, not really. The moment for me was as the plane was landing in Accra, and this is, let's see, August of 1993, I'd had in my mind that I was going to find an apartment in some building filled with young Ghanaian professionals in their 20s. And um, I looked at the lights and I realized that there were really no buildings over like two or three stories. And I was like, oh, okay. So this notion that Accra is going to be New York City, but only African. Yeah, that's, that's not going to work. That's not going to map. And that was this great moment of just like fear and dislocation of like, oh, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. This should be fascinating. And if you'd studied philosophy and you were studying musicology, connect from that to how do you end up as a VP of research and development at Tripod? What were you bringing to that and how did that happen? Sure. Well, I mean, that one's very simple. You have to go back a little bit in time. So the internet in the late 80s and the early 90s was an extremely esoteric skill set. You would pick it up at a very, very narrow range of businesses, but but honestly, businesses for the most part weren't doing internet at that point. Mainly universities. Mainly universities. Yeah. And so being at a university where um, people were using the Unix operating system, where people were using um, the internet, I was able to fairly confidently say in 1994, yes, I know the internet. And uh, yes, I can build HTML web pages, which just wasn't all that hard to figure out. Honestly, probably the, the single best qualification I had was that I had dated my friend Liz Pizarres 
1989 and, and 1990 when she was at the University of California, Berkeley, which meant that we had exchanged passwords on each other's computers. So she got to learn Vax VMS, which was what Williams was running, and I got to learn Berkeley Unix, which turned out to be probably the most useful skill set in my toolkit at that point. But it was pretty easy to be a convincing web guy with very little expertise other than I run a small business doing desktop publishing. I knew my way around the Unix command line and I learned HTML when one of the early specs came out. And that was enough at the company that I, I joined. Tripod was a, a startup, almost all of William's kids, some kids from NYU's interactive telecommunications program, but really, you know, 20 somethings trying to figure out how to build a profitable web business. I was no more or no less qualified than, than any of the other people running there and, and trying to run that business. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of people who came to be known as pioneers because they happened to know a little bit early in a lot of different areas. And I, I think it's just very fascinating and probably a smart thing for people, say, coming out of college to do is to look for an area like that that's not as well tilled. I was lucky that my parents bought an, us an Apple II Plus when I was like in seventh or eighth grade. And I started programming and went on to major in computer science and sort of do a lot of building programs at an early age that put me just one tick ahead of what was to come later and started a company that uh, built political software right as things were moving online and before. So that I was a little bit of ahead of a different game than, than you were. What was kind of your claim to fame at Tripod? Just on, on that question of being one step ahead, I, I think that's exactly what it was. And I, I've tried to explain it to some people as saying it's almost as absurd as if playing Dungeons and Dragons suddenly made me qualified to have a venture capital-based business. Like in the late 1980s, being interested in the internet and how it worked was roughly as geeky and esoteric as you know, role-playing games. I played Dungeons and Dragons. I geeked out on the early internet and I played African music. And it turned out that one of them was wildly profitable and the other two were simply quirky things to do. There is the bad claim to fame, um, which is I have confessed to being the inventor of the internet pop-up ad. There is the maybe slightly better claim to fame, which was that I was part of a team of people who worked to regularize the idea that the internet should be built by ordinary people rather than by professionals. So let me explain a little bit. The tripod business model was that we were going to do highly produced professional quality content for recent college graduates to give them tools for life. They were going to go off find apartments, find jobs, and most critically, start investing their money in mutual funds. And we were funded pretty much by the mutual fund companies to build this magazine worth of content. And we had a paper magazine as well as the website. And the only problem was that no one was actually reading it. And that's because, you know, the content was very, very good, but that was not actually what people were looking for on the early internet. They were not 
looking for highly produced, well-edited content. They were looking for weird stuff. And so one of my programmers, a guy named Jeff Vonderkloot, built a very simple tool late one night. He took a tool that we had built called the Resume Builder, which let you build yourself a, a web page resume. Kind of cool. Um, and he actually made it much, much simpler. And it would just became an HTML builder. You could put whatever HTML you wanted in it, and you would get a resulting web page. And we put it up on the server, and we sort of forgot about it. And the first time I thought about it in a couple of months was when I got a phone call from my internet service provider saying, hey, um, your last month's bill is about 10x what it was the month before. I need you know $50,000 from you by the end of the month. And that was a big deal. I had to you know explain to my boss what was going on. It turned out what was going on was that these free homepages were about 100 times more popular than any content we were producing ourselves. People were putting up recipes, pictures, their hobbies, a non-trivial amount of pirated software and pornography, although we were pretty good uh, about taking that stuff down. But we went through this really tough 18-month period of deciding, would we lean into this and become a different business, or were we committed to being this edited magazine? My victory at Tripod um, was persuading my colleagues that this is where our business was, that that numerically users were telling us that they they didn't want a magazine, they wanted to create their own content. So in, in that sense, I get to claim part of a long and complicated heritage that sort of leads to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all of these other participatory media futures. But yeah, the one piece of it that, I, that I'm willing to claim very specific blame for is the pop-up ad, because I ended up being told by my boss, uh, well, if we're going to do these homepages, the advertisers need to be able to sell ads on them. The advertisers really hate showing up on certain types of content. They get really upset you know, when the Ford ad is on top of a, a pornographic web page. He ended up saying, fix it. And I, I did two things to try to fix it. One created the pop-up ad. It, it separated the ad from the content of the page. The other, you know, cost us probably a quarter billion dollars, which is we started building a very effective process to get rid of pornography on our site. And that meant we had much less traffic than our competitor, GeoCities, which it just honestly didn't particularly enforce taking down pornography. And they sold for vastly more money than we did. You sold to Lycos, right? Ah, uh, yes. The late, great... Uh, the search engine. Yeah. Like, not just an also-ran search engine, kind of like an also, also, also ran. Like, believe it or not, it, there, there were days before Google... And there was competition between half a dozen different search engines, and, and Lycos was one of those engines. Yep. What caused you to leave that world and go on to your next thing? It was pretty clear to me that I'd gotten impossibly lucky my first time around. That 
the odds that whatever business I joined next would be that successful or that I would be allowed to have a position of that much you know, prominence and visibility was basically zero. Did you make money off it too? Yeah, less than people might imagine. So I I ended up with about 1% of the company. The company sold for, I believe it's $58 million. So I I think on paper, I made about $600,000. Not bad for your mid-20s. But that stock was locked up for a year. In that year, it went up sevenfold. So briefly, I had a paper net worth of about $4 million. And then it, you know, quickly tanked and was maybe one or two million. And and then I sunk almost all of it into my next venture, which was in a nonprofit, which was trying to figure out. So so tripod happened in this tiny town, town of eight thousand people in northwestern Massachusetts, and somehow persuaded people that maybe little college towns like this could be the fuel for the next economy. And so I had this wacky idea, what if Ghana, where I'd lived and worked before, could also be part of this next economy? And I concluded that one of the things that was missing was technical training, that there just weren't that many programmers in sub-Saharan Africa. And maybe I could help people take a break from their careers and come over and work on software engineering projects in Accra, Ghana. And that was Geek Corps. So that, that's what I ended up doing next. Sounds like you wanted to go back there. I wanted to integrate the two. Basically, you know, there's really only two places I've lived in my life. And it's it's Western Massachusetts and West Africa. And I wanted to kind of demonstrate to myself that the two could could coexist and uh, and interact with one another. So so that was that that's called Geek Core. So that was Geek Core. That was an NGO that I ran for about five years out of North Adams, Massachusetts. I funded it in part. I, I got really generous support and I, I should um absolutely recognize uh, Bo Peabody and Dick Sabat, late Dick Sabat, who were um, sort of the co-founders of Tripod. They were terrific at, at putting money on the table as well. It turns out that there's a reason why only national governments spend money on things like the Peace Corps. It's not a very good business model. It costs an awful lot of money um, to put young people on airplanes and send them overseas and keep them alive. I bet it was quite an experience, though, for you. Learned a lot. We worked in 13 countries, ranging from Mongolia to Rwanda. We worked on projects like the Gachacha database. So this was the database of people implicated in the genocide in Rwanda. And so building um, the systems that, that helped those trials take place. We helped build the first wireless ISP exchange point in Ghana. So all of the internet service providers in Ghana sort of meet at a single tower uh, in Accra and uh, trade packets between them. And and we were deeply involved with building that. It was incredible. It it gave me a chance to travel all over the world. It gave me a chance to learn a little bit about the field of international development. It gave me a, a real sense of sort of what what the limitations of that model that had been so successful uh, for me and my friends at Tripod were. It turns out that people were absolutely willing 
to give money to a bunch of drunken stone kids in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Um, but giving money to African business was just completely out of the question. Just, you know, no, no, no one was going to entertain that as a, as a possibly good idea. You mentioned in your, in your summary up front that you landed at Berkman at Harvard. That seems like a big step from running your own NGO. How did that happen? The good graces of John Palfrey. John Palfrey is currently the head of the MacArthur Foundation. He, um, ran the Berkman Klein Center at that point. Berkman was sort of the center of the internet and society universe at that point. If you were reflecting on how the internet was affecting politics, sociology, anthropology, Berkman was really the the place to do your research. It's a field that now gets called internet studies, but it, it, it wasn't its own field at that point. Berkman at that point was part of Harvard's law school. It's now the Berkman Klein Center, and it's a- affiliated with all of Harvard, not just the law school. I had done a lot of work on internet and development. So this is a field that was called ICT for D, Internet and C- Communications Technology for Development and was considered for better or worse something of an expert on that field and i think berkman felt a need to diversify now it's pretty hilarious to think about uh, a white guy from western massachusetts as a step towards diversity but that kind of gives you a sense of how white and male the internet field was in the early 2000s but yeah, I was thrilled to have the invitation to go there. I was really honored to be there. I managed to take the one-year fellowship I'd been offered and um, hang on to it for about nine years. Anytime you stay somewhere nine years, there's a reason you're staying there. And you, weren't you also concurrently doing uh, Global Voices? Yeah, so I had the chance to to launch two projects there that that still exist and that I'm unspeakably proud of. Uh, with Rebecca McKinnon, who was also a fellow there, we started trying to raise the visibility of international blogging. That led to a conference that Rebecca organized and to a session that she and I co-organized around blogging around the world. Out of that bloggers conference came Global Voices, which she and I co-founded. And we sort of took turns managing over the next couple of years. Managing meant fundraising. So um, not always the, the most fun job. Thank goodness our dear friend Ivan Seagal now does that work along with Georgia Popowell who came out of the Global Voices community. I also started a big research project called Media Cloud. And this is a tool that is still used by many communication scholars to understand power and influence in the news media. Uh, it's basically a giant version of LexisNexis, but open source and sort of optimized so that you can ask questions like, um, how often does the media report on Joe Biden? And what are the words most often used in context with Joe Biden? And it's become a very powerful backend for, for a great deal of media research. I mean, you're now sort of a serial entrepreneur in a certain way. What were you learning about that kind of entrepreneurship along the way that is worth sharing? So I, I think I've been a serial social entrepreneur. In fairness, I haven't tried making money 
I think that I think that counts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, I should be very, very clear that I was, I was never actually very good at making money. I, I, I think we were in the in the right place at the right time with Tripod. I think the first thing that I would say is that you either need to get good at letting go of your projects or you need to commit to running them for the rest of your life. With Geek Core, I was not particularly good at letting go of it. My personal politics got in the way of that project. We ended up in 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 a really interesting situation. Most of our work was with USAID, the US Agency for International Development. It's very hard to work with USAID. Their their financial procedures are are Byzantine. They're incredibly hard to do. We ended up merging Geek Corps with a much older organization called the International Executive Service Corps. So we sent young techies to the developing world to help with businesses. IESC sent retired executives. We were very culturally different. Their main problem was volunteers dying on the job. They had, you know, people often in their 70s going over and trying to help a shoe factory in Armenia run more efficiently. But the main problem was that they were Republicans. And this was under the Bush administration. I was doing work for George Soros. I actually worked for Soros's Open Society Foundations for about 15 years um, as a board member and advisor on technologies. And they were firmly convinced that the Bush administration would not work with me because of my Soros connections. That wasn't true. The sort of professional people in USAID really didn't have much of a beef with that. But what it meant was that I couldn't work on Geek Core anymore. And when I left it, the the team really came apart. One of the lessons I took from that was don't be central to the team. You know, it, unless you're going to commit to doing it for the rest of your life, build teams that can can outlive you. So Rebecca and I are are both board members on Global Voices, but we have nothing to do with the day to day of it. And it runs brilliantly because neither of us is involved with running it day to day. I've tried to get there with Media Cloud. It's it's been harder. Um, but understanding that institutions aren't you, that like ideally you might help to build an institution, but then you get to separate yourself from it. And if you do it well, it will outlive you and do things you never would have imagined doing. That's an incredible force multiplier. Like the most precious thing you have in life is your time and your attention. And, and that's, you know, that's a finite quantity. And so if you can get good about starting things up and then handing them off to people who are just far better than you are, that's a wonderful thing to learn. So that, that, that might be the big thing. I mean, unfortunately, so many things, both in the for-profit and nonprofit worlds that get handed off, get ruined. Do you have any special theories about how you pass it to somebody or some people that really have the best interest of that at heart? You know, we, we live under a system that subjugates a lot of things to markets. We're willing to go places because of the money, not because it's the right fit. Um, we tried to sell tripod to America online. It was very clearly a bad cultural fit. Um, America Online ended up sort of inviting me down to document our technical architecture. I spent like a week in a hotel at Dulles Airport 
the week before Christmas. And then once they understood what we were doing, they cut off negotiations with us. Then we ended up with Lycos, who was willing to pay a little bit more money. I don't think we ever talked about, was it a good cultural fit? You know, will what we had in Williamstown survive? The answer was we had investors. They wanted to cash out. And this was the best way to cash out of it. That's not how you keep an organization alive. That's not how you keep a culture alive. You have to think about this question of, do you share values? Do you share principles? Are you looking at things the same way? Markets do not naturally do that. You can make markets do that. You can decide that you're going to be a social enterprise and that you're willing to leave money on the table because you wish to be values consistent. And organizations that have done that well are praiseworthy. But that is not the way most of the world works. The way most of the world works is around maximizing value. I've been incredibly lucky that what I've really been able to do the last 20 years of my life or so is choose to work the way I want to with the people that I want to around the issues and values that I want to. I think that would be good advice for a lot of people. I think that's uh, really a precious commodity if you can find it in this world, for sure. I know you were next at the MIT Media Lab, which I was a grad student at MIT for four years and had a one fellowship that took me into the Media Lab. So I got a little bit of a sense of it. It had some moments of being star-crossed of late that you're well aware of, but it's a amazing place of ideas and ferment. What was your experience like there? And uh, what was the center for civic media exactly? I, I got recruited into MIT by the Knight Foundation. Um, so this leading journalism foundation. My dear friend Alberto Barguin, who runs the foundation, called me up and said, look, we've, we've invested in this new center for civic media. The leadership has to leave. Would you take it over? I ended up saying, sure, you know, um, I, I want certain things. I want to be able to teach. I want to be able to advise students. Alberta was able to negotiate a lot of that for me. But I came into MIT in a weird way. I sort of came in through that side door. My lab was very explicitly focused on social change and social justice, which was maybe not the main focus of most of the labs w- when I was at the Media Lab. There was definitely sort of a sense of, well, that's admirable, but it's not going to create the future. One of the things that helped was that some of my students ended up doing work that was incredibly visible and incredibly prominent. The most famous of those is is Joy Bolin Winnie, who has done uh, a lot of groundbreaking work around racial discrimination in uh, facial recognition software. The other project that got a ton of attention, justifiably so, was work by Catherine D'Ignazio and Alexis Hope on building hackathons around the breast pump. And this was a very conscious um, way of sort of trying to complicate the media lab, uh, a place that is notoriously white, male, technocentric, and shiny, uh, and talking about lactation and about parental leave and sort of things along those lines. So, you know, my presence there, I think, was always a little bit rubbing against the grain. There's wonderful things about the Media Lab. 
it's hard to imagine any place with sort of more academic freedom. Most people are teaching a course a year, maybe co-teaching another course. I went to UMass and, and found myself with a 2-2 course load, and that's vastly better than most professors out there. But that's a very different situation than essentially an 01, which is what a lot of people were teaching at the Media Lab. And the students are incredible. The Media Lab is able to reject, you know, 95% of applicants. So you're you're cherry picking utterly exquisite students. The flip side is that a lot of people's work is really around inventing the future because they want to invent the future, not about a future necessarily being more just or more fair uh, than the world is right now. And it was hard to have those conversations. I, my students often felt very much like we were on the fringe of those conversations. Um, and, you know, in a funny way, this blew up around the scandal involving uh, Joey Ito and Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein had visited the lab several times, um, had given money to projects at the lab and had invested in an investment fund run by Joey Ito, who was running the lab at that point. Um Joey, some years earlier, had invited me to meet Epstein. I did a little bit of reading and came back and said, I, I really do not want to meet this person. I, I really hope you will stop meeting with this person. So some of his seediness was already well known or, I mean, seediness is underplaying it by quite a factor. But what was it about him that you picked up? My father was a criminal defense attorney. And one of the things that I remember doing when I was 10 or 11 years old was reading the New York State Penal Code and um, having long conversations with my father about what plea deals are and how people plead to uh, different things. So he'd already pled to something Florida related. Or I can't remember. This he'd, he'd, he'd pled to um, uh, pretty serious crimes, um, much more serious crimes than you would generally expect uh, a very wealthy person to plead to. So normally in a plea deal, the whole point is that you're trying to convict somebody, you're offering lesser crimes than what they could actually be held for. He had pled to some very, very serious offenses. And that combined with his wealth sort of said to me, oh, this guy did some really bad stuff. There was also reporting uh, that had come out around his arrests. He was not the incredibly visible figure that he is now, but it, it wasn't hard with some combination of reading and, and some knowledge of how criminal justice works for very wealthy people to sort of understand that he had done some very bad things indeed. And um, I, I, at one point, said to Joey, I, I, I really... I, I really think this is a bad idea. I really think you need to stop working with him. It, evidently, and, and and this is what came out of Ronan Farrow's reporting, what, what that meant was that there was a policy when I was in the building that Epstein was to be hidden in Joey's office and that I wasn't to be allowed in Joey's office at that time. That'll solve the problem. Well, it it, it, it did to a certain extent. I never saw Epstein in the building. I, I, I had no idea that he was he was coming to the building. Um, and that's that's part of why you uh, left, right? Well, it, it is why I left. I, I mean, um, 
in retrospect, I, I can say things about how the Media Lab was and wasn't a good fit for me. But my plan had actually been to remain there for about another five years. I actually had some new doctoral students that I was incredibly excited to work with. I wouldn't have taken them on as doctoral students had I not planned on being there for another four or five years. So no, I I I, I didn't have plans to leave. And then, of course, the other thing is... Um, once I left, I didn't have anywhere to go. And I should be clear on this. My, my highest degree is a, is a BA from Williams. So I had no idea whether I'd be able to teach at a university level again. How did you land the, the position at Amherst? Twitter. Amherst. Twitter? Yeah, I, I tweeted out um, about my departure. My departure was was messy. I hadn't intended it to be public, someone within the media lab leaked a letter that I had written to my research group about my decision to wind down the lab at the end of the year. That letter ended up running in the Boston Globe. Uh, I don't think it's the, the way anyone would particularly like to run, uh, to um, do a job. I tweeted acknowledging the Globe piece and the dean of the social sciences at UMass Amherst um, just tweeted to me and said, you know, you'd have a much shorter commute dot, dot, dot. And I wrote back and said, John, I'm following you now. If you're serious about this, you know, come find me in my DMs. We started a process that led to a campus visit and a talk and um, has ultimately led to me joining the UMass faculty. I mean, it's got to be enormously flattering to land a post like that when you don't have a PhD. I mean, I I didn't finish my PhD and that... uh, and I don't regret that. I went on to do many other things that I preferred, but I finished the exams and, and, uh, all but the dissertation. I had never thought about going to teach at a university on that account. So you've fortunately been so prominent in other ways that you had the value to the university. That... I, I've been incredibly lucky on maybe three different fronts there. The first is timing. There's a generation of us, Clay Shirky, Dana Boyd, um, Zainab Tufeshi, who were writing and talking about these issues at a moment where there wasn't necessarily a ton of scholarship around it. And there was some real flexibility. Dana and, and Zainab had the PhDs. Clay and I did not. Um, let's be clear. There's a certain amount of male privilege there where, you know, being um, undegreed but good speakers and provocateurs, I'm sure, open those doors. Um, the second thing is that I've had institutions that were willing to take a chance on me. MIT took a chance allowing me to teach PhD students. I turned out to be pretty good at that. My students now teach at Cornell University, Northeastern, MIT. They've done awfully well for themselves. And the fact that they're off on the tenure track, I think I've sort of shown that that we're capable of, of working within this field. And then I think the third thing is that um, I have never particularly focused my writing for scholarly audiences, but people in scholarly audiences have often found it helpful. And so it gives me enough of a, a publication footprint that I'm a plausible person to put forward. But no, I'm, I'm a phenomenally lucky SOB and um, grateful for it and trying to use that position to try to amplify other people who are doing important work, whether or not they've got the PhDs. 
What is the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure? So we have to call it the initiative for digital public infrastructure. Institute means something very specific to uh, a big state university. We, we have not achieved institute yet, but we I, are. I, I apologize for promoting it, that it, that it, high. It, it's a okay. I, <laughs> I, I, I just have to, I have to very quickly. Um, the initiative for digital public infrastructure. What is it? Out, out, of, out of the bureaucratic trenches I will end up in if we, if we use the wrong term. My work now is around this idea that we're sort of 20 years into the web as a broadly used public space. Let's use 2000, 2001 as sort of the, the rough moment where there's sort of the assumption that most people in America are, are going to be online. And a shift starting around 2007, 2008, that a lot of our political discourse, a lot of our public space is going to be online. It's going to be on Facebook. It's going to be on Twitter. It's going to be on YouTube. About 10 years into that shift, really around 2017, we have people sort of standing up and saying, this isn't going so well. Maybe these technologies aren't very good for us. Maybe they're not very good for society. We really need to reconsider. We should regulate these spaces. Maybe we should block them. Maybe we should ban them. But one way or another, it, it can't go on the way that it's going. Many, many, many smart people out there thinking about how do you regulate Facebook? How do you make Twitter less toxic? I see very few doing the work that I think needs to be done, which is what would you want social media to be? What would you actually want it to do? If you were recreating this ex nihilo, if you were really just starting with a blank slate, what, what would you want social media to do? I would want social media to be spaces for public dialogue that help make us better citizens and neighbors. And in my mind, those are social networks with some very explicit civic purposes to them. They're probably heavily moderated. They're not focused on complete freedom of expression in the way that everyone is sort of focused now. They might be designed to help you know your community better or help you focus on local political issues. There would be many of them, not just a handful. And maybe most importantly, their primary goal would not be profit. So you would build these the same way that you build libraries or public parks or other aspects of public infrastructure that help us have the societies that we want to live in. So Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure is a group of people who are thinking about and building a better social web based on the idea that we want technologies that are good for us and good for society rather than good for the markets. Given that the incumbent platforms had the power of the market to put them where they are and the incredible speed that they came to dominate and and own those spaces is there is any part of this imagining how that transformation comes to fruition absolutely so so one of the things that where it's very very helpful to have a sense of history is that you've seen businesses rise and fall in power before when I was involved with Tripod, the most powerful company on the internet was Yahoo. We don't talk a lot about Yahoo anymore. It's not, not very interesting. But it was a really big deal in the late 1990s. It was a particular way of organizing the web. 
and they were very, very good at getting partners and uh, you know so on and so forth. Then they lost their way, they lost their cool, they lost their business model. I don't have any difficulty imagining Facebook going the way of Yahoo. Uh, that's pretty easy for me to get my head around. A lot of people seem to feel like you'd have to regulate these companies out of existence. I'm, I'm not sure. I actually think all you really need is, is a shift in opinion, a shift in focus, so on and so forth. I'm writing something right now. I'm giving talks that I'm, I'm calling the good web. And I'm basically arguing that there's at least four groups that are sort of thinking about the future of the internet. One group are these incumbents. They are Facebook sort of saying, hey, we're going to become meta. Now we're going to be in VR. And that's where the future is. Come with us. For some reason, that feels desperate to me. But well, I think it is. And, and I, I think it is. And, and, and so, you know, the advantages that they have is they, they've got enormous amounts of money. They've got great technical talent. They've got an installed user base. The downside is that um, nobody trusts them. They've never figured out how to solve the problems of this first generation of social media. And they're desperate. Exactly. They're desperate to sort of find these solutions. So, so here's three other camps that are, that are actually worth paying some attention to. The second camp is really weird. It's, it's people who've been deplatformed from existing social network platforms. And so they are being forced to build the new social web because it's the only way they can stay online. Some of these people are horrific. It's folks like Gab, where they're building these. But there's also some folk in this camp who I you know, support to the end of the earth. Different communities, different reasons. Assembly 4 is a collective of sex workers in Australia. And they had to get off Twitter and Backpage because of SESTA-FOSTA. Um, and they've ended up creating their own sex worker focused version of Twitter called Twitter that has 400,000 users and is sort of co-designed to keep sex workers safe. Like for me, that's a great example of how you might want community to evolve. So I watch those people very carefully. I watch Gab very carefully. I want to understand sort of where they're coming from. Second is, um, is the Web3 people. Um, for the most part, I think blockchain's a terrible, terrible way to store data. I think it is environmentally disastrous. I think the the tokenization of everything is a really terrible way to run a democracy. But I am also super interested in the fact that the people flocking to Web3 are also very frustrated with the centralized platforms and are looking for a solution to that problem. And then the, the final camp, and this is the one that I align with, are, you know, it's the hippies. It's, it's the cooperative web. It's the open source communities. It's the people who believe in public goods. It's the Wikipedians. And what's interesting about those folks is we have demonstrated that our model works. Open source software works. Wikipedia works. Community managed networks work up to a certain size. The trick may be that they work in practice and not in theory that it's very hard to sort of make the case that cooperative voluntary networks are going to take down a Facebook. And one of the things that those cooperative spaces do not do is they, they don't have access to capital. They don't have a good way of raising the sorts of tens of millions of dollars that you would need to build real true alternatives in this space. So I'm doing a lot of thinking right now about 
what mix of technologies, regulation, business models, funding could lead us towards this sort of next generation of, of the web. And that, that, that's really what my work focuses on these days. You have a book out called Mistrust, which I've read a considerable amount of. And I think it is the work that I've come across of yours that most intersects with work that I've done myself. It's dense with a hodgepodge of many interesting things. Just the sweep of it is is quite spectacular, I think. I, in particular, have not followed the international part of things nearly like you have. And so I learned a lot about that through that. Could you describe what the book covers and what your thesis is? The quick version of mistrust is that mistrust of institutions is the most powerful political force in mature democracies over the last 50 years. Over the last 50 years in the United States and in the UK in particular, but also in a lot of other advanced economies, people have grown less trusting of institutions. That includes the government, the courts, the legislature, includes churches, banks, big business, anything that is big enough that you recognize it by a logo rather than by an individual's face, that's an institution. And we don't like them. And it turns out that anti-institutionalism is something that happens on both the left and the right. We're very familiar with it on the right in the US right now because it's it's been sort of the centerpiece of Trumpism, right? The whole mantra of Trumpism is don't trust the media, they're lying to you. Don't trust the government, it's seized by the deep state. Trust only me. The truth is the left has a strong anti-institutional bent as well. This was the Occupy movement during Obama, right? Um, capitalism isn't working. The system is rigged for the big businesses and not for you. The government is in the pocket of corporate interests. On both the left and the right, we have this very strong, what I described in the book as insurrectionist stand. And what I meant by insurrectionism, and I was adopting the term from Chris Hayes from a book that he had written, um, what I meant was looking at institutions and saying, this is no longer fit for purpose. Let us build something new in its place. I was not talking about storming the Capitol. Right. The term didn't wear well after January 6th. No, 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 no. And, and of course, my book came out, you know, 10 days after the Jan 6 interaction. So it was, it was kind of a, a rough little bit of timing. But my, my point, the thesis of the book is most people who are involved with politics, most people who are involved with social change are institutionalists. They believe that we make change by investing in these institutions by becoming parts of these institutions, by seeking institutional power. My contention is that you're going to miss 50% of the world right now with that as a stance, that 50% of the world basically says, I don't trust any of these institutions. Why would I conceivably get in line behind Congress? Congress has a 9% approval rating. Why is fighting for election of my congressperson the most important thing I can do? Therefore, what you actually want to do is help people imagine and build alternatives to these institutions. So, so that's what the book tries to focus on. And you had the term insurrectionist, 
and contrasting it with institutionalist. And towards the end, the term resurrectionist came up, which I thought was an interesting combination. Do you put yourself in that category of someone who both understands the value of institutions, but wants to change them greatly when needed? That, that was a gift from my friend Eli Pariser. Eli read a draft of the book and said, well, wh which are you? Are, are you an institutionalist or an insurrectionist? And I said, well, you know, I started writing the book as an insurrectionist. It was a, it was a book about making insurrectionism palatable to a broader audience. In the process of the Trump presidency, I saw many people on the left become rather profound institutionalists. You saw this really weird moment where people on the left were cheering for the FBI because the FBI was, you know, sticking it to Trump. And I think part of what we all realized was that we need institutions and the norms that are embedded within them to make our current system function. So I ended up sort of coming out of this saying, look, I don't want to tear down all the institutions because it's clear society can't survive that. But I do want the institutions to look at why they have such a low level of trust and start figuring out how we rebuild those institutions. And, and my thought was that that made me a resurrectionist. And so Eli gave me the term. It's a funny book. I had to write it as a way of understanding my students and, and how they thought they were changing the world. And very few of them are going into government. They're going into activism. They're starting projects to design new technologies. And I wanted to understand why that was a legitimate theory of change. In retrospect, now having it out there, in many ways, it feels to me like a handbook for sort of understanding and, and maybe having some sympathy towards many of the folks on the right who who I don't have very much in common with politically, but but who I am sort of striving to understand and understand why mistrust, whether it's a, a Biden or Fauci or vaccines or big pharma, why that's such a powerful force. I did think that there's a lot of insight to the notion that awareness of that mistrust could be harnessed to improve things. I end up sort of arguing that that mistrust is fuel and that if you can harness it into meaningful political change it can it can fuel a whole movement uh, you could argue that the civil rights movement was based on long-earned mistrust of the institutions of Jim Crow and essentially saying these must be transformed and simultaneously the civil rights movement had enough belief in the institutions of the Supreme Court of the presidency, um, that it was able to channel those. The danger of mistrust is that like most fuel, it's also explosive. And I think that's what's going on in the Republican Party right now. I think the Republican Party has literally exploded into an uncontrollable fire of mistrust. And I'm not sure that there's a good way to uh, to undo that explosion. I watched the presidential campaigns, starting with McCain and Dean and Obama, cycle after cycle, the amount of exposure that people had through the internet to politics ramped up in fundraising and voter contact and distributed campaigning, everything in between. When Trump came, the optimism and the sort of 
positivity around these platforms and and programs took a bit of a turn. Um, and people saw the use of things like Twitter and Facebook to promote much more disagreeable attitudes and candidates. You're watching all this from a, a real lens of of being a pioneer in the internet and studying it intensively. What were you thinking as as we went through that evolution and we got to Trump? Sure. Well, l- let me start by sort of saying that I think I was perhaps never as much of an optimist for the internet and politics as many of my friends were. I'm a blogger from way back, and a lot of left-wing bloggers who I know and love are people who got involved with the Dean campaign and were really convinced that people were actually going to write political platforms and build policy and influence the future of America on their blogs. And I always felt like Nico Mele, who worked on that campaign, but from a much more realistic and almost brutal view of politics, had it right, which was... Um, we want people's email addresses because then we can email them and ask for money. And I think to a large extent that has been what a great deal of political technology has been about. It's been about trying to build a faux individual relationship with voters in the hopes that they will open their pocketbooks and make it possible to buy TV ads. So this actually takes us to television, which I feel like is probably a missing part of the equation that we don't talk about when we talk about politics. At the end of the day, televised narratives are still incredibly important. Mainstream media narratives are incredibly important, even as much as they're setting the terms of debate for online conversation. This is why people involved with politics are are always watching what CNN is saying, what the New York Times is saying. This is in many ways the whole right-wing argument, these mainstream media outlets aren't paying attention to what we say they should be paying attention to. My colleague, Yohai Benkler, made this case sort of analyzing the 2016 elections that much of what's going on in online space is about changing the direction of what's being said on Fox News. And that what's being said on Fox News then changes the direction of what's being said on CNN, the New York Times, so on and so forth. So the online space is incredibly important. Trump is able to directly speak to it. And lots of other far-right provocateurs are out there pushing Fox, which is initially endorsing these sort of mainstream Republican candidates, pushing them further and further and further into the sort of Trumpist right. And as they move to the right, the New York Times, CNN, and others essentially have to respond and move right with them. So I think what Trump ends up doing is sort of realizing that there is a way in which this media environment can be much more profitable than just bringing in campaign contributions. What it can try to do is steer the larger media narrative. And the online narrative still, in many ways, I would say, is not as important as that mainstream news narrative, but it's a little bit like the tugboat pulling the barge. You can be very effective in changing the direction of that much larger narrative, even from a small but influential voice in these sorts of online spaces. And so what Trump 
succeeded in doing so well was in sort of tapping into this undercurrent of, I don't believe any of these things. I don't believe what you say are the most important issues. I don't believe that this is how elections are decided or not decided. And he's sort of able to say, and there's a whole lot of other people who don't believe in any of this stuff either. Here's what they believe. I'm going to amplify them and I'm going to steer the whole party in that general direction. As you're talking, I'm wondering, was it steered to the to a Trumpist right? Was Trump on the right in 2016? Did they, I mean, like he was probably on immigration, but he probably wasn't on trade. He might've been thought of as to the left and picked up a space that more left-wing Democrats. I mean, he was probably to the right on race, but he was very suspect as a former Democrat for the law. He picked up the right-wing evangelical endorsements. And like he ran in a confusing in, in way. In a way that's still sort of incomprehensible. So I don't think Trump makes a ton of sense in terms of left-right. Those are just the terms that we usually use to talk about politics. In the mistrust book, I end up talking about this notion of institutionalist insurrectionist left-right. So Hillary is a left institutionalist. She's a creature of Washington, State Department, knows how all the systems work, predictable, works within those institutions. Bernie at least positions himself as a left insurrectionist. Somehow outside of all of this, yes, I've been in elected office for the last 40 years, but I still wear middens made out of carpet scraps. And I voted against everything all the way. And I voted against everything all the way. Um, So the campaign starts as a campaign between a left institutionalist and a right institutionalist. We have Jeb, you know, um, good, predictable Southern governor, not going to make any waves, you know, from a great political dynasty. And he just gets torpedoed by the insurrectionist right. So I think understanding Trump as coming from the insurrectionist right, I think that's a much more complete picture. But left-right implies that you have a a coherent ideology. And and I think the point of Trump is that there isn't a coherent ideology in terms of left and right. There is a very coherent ideology in terms of don't trust anyone but me. These institutions are not going to save you. In fact, they are corrupted. You know, a lot of my work once Trump was in office was in trying to understand QAnon because I felt like in many ways QAnon actually sort of got the heart of the Trumpist appeal. And it was this idea that none of these reliable institutions could be trusted. They were all a surface with the truth somewhere far underneath. And, you know, that's proved to be very valuable in sort of trying to understand what's happened now that this is a party that has been sort of fully co-opted by the big lie. We spent a couple of years with QAnon sort of going, wait, who are these crazy people and why is anyone listening to them? And now we have a party that literally believes something that is is demonstrably not true. How much they believe it, how much they're playing along with it, sort of irrelevant at a point. Once you've essentially opened yourself to the idea that that ideological leadership is based around acceptance of a lie, you you have simply gotten off of the traditional political path and you're playing an entirely different game. How do you intersect that 
insurrectionist right with the developments in the internet, the way that things are structured currently in the internet that is very flawed, the platform and so on. How do you think about that nexus? So the first thing I would say is I think people try very hard to blame the internet and the participatory internet for Trump, for Trumpism, for this sort of shift in the party. I think that's a hard argument to make. I think the Republican Party shift starts with talk radio, with Fox News. I think it's something that you have to go back to Rush Limbaugh. You have to start seeing this populist anger coming up as a major voice in the party in sort of a contemporary form, you know, really starting in the 1980s and 1990s. So it's well before well-developed spread of the internet. When you look at mistrust more broadly, the real shift in political trust in the United States happens in the 1970s. It's the end of the 60s. It's the end of the civil rights movement. It's Vietnam. It's Nixon. It's the assassination of some great leaders. And it's this moment of intense disappointment and dissatisfaction with the American project where you start sort of seeing that shift. So the, the first thing I end up saying in all of that is that you really do need to look much further back in time to see the origins of some of these movements. But let's be clear, the internet absolutely supercharges this. And it, it does it in two ways. The first is that people can create media with a pretty high level of gloss and believability without a ton of technical support and backup. Bloggers are able to write columns that look a whole lot like newspaper columns back in the day. Uh, podcasters can make shows that sound a lot like a radio show. The YouTubers can make video that looks pretty darn convincing. It doesn't necessarily look like it's coming off of a television screen, but it does look like it's thoughtful and produced and, and put together. And so those barriers to getting your ideas out there, no matter how weird or bad they are, you can get them out there and you can get them listened to at a certain amount of scale. The other problem with this is that our discovery systems, and this is not just Google, this is also Facebook as a discovery system. Here's someone who might think the same things that you do. YouTube is a discovery system. Here's a video you might like. Make it easier to find the weird stuff. And there's a great book that I'm reading right now by Francesca Tripodi. She is a scholar who's been studying essentially how the right reframes issues in, in terms of freedom. And so we'll take almost any issue and reframe it around faith, around freedom, around family, around firearms, uh, around the armed forces and the police. And her observation is that you can take an issue and end up with radically different vocabulary about it. The right and the left simply use very different words to talk about things. When you then search for those right-wing words, you find yourself in a right-wing universe of information about it. So, you know, we may think we're talking about gun control. As soon as you say gun control, you're off in the liberal verse of how we talk about these things. 
as soon as you talk about 2A rights or 2AF, 2A freedoms, you find yourself off in that right-wing space. And these are debates that perhaps 20 or 30 years ago would have been taking place on television, would have been taking place in the newspapers, and would have had a certain amount of common vocabulary towards them. But we've lost that common vocabulary, and we sort of split into multiple ideological universes. And you know, those words become the shibboleth. They become the, the key that opens up the ideological world that you want to be in. And so it's not only that we're not even living in the same factual and interpretive universe anymore, we're not living in the same language. We fractured the language to the point where when that intersects with the participatory internet and the way that it's organized, then we find ourselves in, a, in our own reality and our own facts. Well, it's, it's around facts and it's around lying that I think the Trump internet nexus hinges because he's the first, we've had plenty of presidents that have lied, Lyndon Johnson about Vietnam or Bush probably lied us into Iraq a bit. Like there, there's plenty of, but the, the, the scale, the level, the daily, the, the, the lying that came out of Trump was an entirely different animal, right? And that connected to the ability for other people to make their own realities and to amplify that lying, including potentially other countries. That's different, isn't it? I, I think it is different. The way that I tried to understand the role of lying during the Trump administration, and now particularly post-Trump, has been to try to understand Russian and sort of post-Soviet bloc politics. So one of my favorite articles on all of this is, is from Anne Applebaum. And she's a, a very smart scholar about Russia and the former Soviet bloc and is married to sort of a center-right Polish politician. And her husband found himself essentially exiled from his own party because his party took this turn into conspiracy theory. And it's a conspiracy theory having to do with the death of the former president of the country. And the facts seem to suggest that the president ordered a very unwise landing on an unsafe airfield, crashing the plane and you know killing himself and everyone aboard. Um, but the conspiracy theory is that this was Russian revenge against the Poles. And if you do not subscribe to this theory, you really cannot be part of this party. Its entire ideological apparatus is based around this, let's call it a big lie. So we can see ways in which societies have sort of had these mistruths as a cleavage point. And, and there's an example there of how an otherwise sane society has sort of headed in, in an apparently insane direction, but has sort of carried on with it for, for quite a while. It hasn't shattered the society. It sheared it, but it hasn't sort of ripped it apart. Um, she, along with um, some of the other Russia scholars that, that I really uh, appreciate, Masha Gessen, so in addition to, to Applebaum, she ends up working very closely um, with my friend uh, Peter Pomerantsov. And Pomerantsov um, 
is a is a British journalist spends a lot of time in Russia um, early on in the Putin regime, and he sort of comes up with a different theory for what's going on, which is that Putin's way of staying in power is to ensure that nothing is true, um, and that anything that comes up as news ends up being dismissed as well. That's clearly someone making a play for power. Um, anytime you encounter something that appears to be factual, that appears to be, um, what's going on, it's essentially dismissed as, oh, well, you know, they want you to believe that. And the, they is some ideological actor somewhere out that. And what's interesting about that is at a point where no one trusts Putin and his government, but no one trusts the opposition either. At a certain point, everything comes down to power. Putin's got the power. The rest of you don't. And therefore, you know, falling in line with his particular set of lies seems to be the the way to go. But it doesn't posit that here is a unique liar. It sort of posits that everyone is a liar. And I think in many ways, somewhere between the Applebaum vision of Poland of they've grabbed this lie and they're going to run with it. And the Pomerantz version, which is, and by the way, they think everyone else is lying as well, right? They assume that everyone on the left is lying. Why would it matter that Trump is lying? He's the one who's calling out everybody else. Maybe I don't really believe everything he has to say, but everybody lies. That is simply the way the game is played. And this is the sign that aligns with with my interests. Now, these are both um, terribly dark views, of a democracy, but my views of our current democracy are pretty dark. I don't want my country going any further down that road. How do we pull out of that trajectory if, you know, people are both working hard to to go down that road, incentivized to go down that road, and it's kind of working? I wish I had a brilliant answer for you. I really do. And, um, I think this is one of the hardest things about being a scholar at the moment is that you can kind of wave your arms and say, we really don't like where this is going. Um, I think one of the things that is sort of stunning, and this is bad news rather than good news, is that one of the things that often seems to help a society when it is getting as polarized as ours seems to be is an external threat. You could imagine a world in which the threat of a pandemic would have been a unifying force where we sort of find a way to pull together and take care of ourselves. And instead, it became intensely, intensely polarized. It didn't just become intensely polarized, right? It it was played that way. It was played. Fair enough. I'll give you that. It was it was turned into something intensely polarizing. But I think that's that's where this gets so challenging, right? We're at this really crazy moment right now where if you decide to take a breath from the pandemic, you can refocus on the crisis on democracy. And if you decide to take a break from the crisis in democracy, you can focus on the environmental crisis. And I'm not sure there's any way to take a break from that triad of intersecting crises. For me, the one that I think in many ways is the most challenging is the crisis in democracy because it is making us absolutely unable to deal with other the other challenges. There are fine ideas out there on the table for what we might be able to do 
to deal with climate change if we had political will and unity, but we don't. And therefore, all those, you know, very smart ideas are proving sort of insufficient um, to be able to put them into practice. We've watched other societies um, try to figure out how to have a moment of unity and sacrifice around coronavirus, or some of them with, with more success than we've had. Um, but we really haven't passed the test. We've allowed this to turn into something intensely polarizing. And I agree with you. They started at first, but it, you know, it really has turned into an intensely polarized issue on, on both sides. I don't know. I, I wish I had a good answer for you. The best that I can do at this point is try to get a more nuanced understanding of what I think is actually going on. And what I do think is actually going on is that we are no longer dealing with a common set of facts or a common set of language. We have torn apart into media ecosystems that simply aren't talking to one another anymore. And we need to be studying and understanding what that ecosystem looks like because it's not the one that we grew up in. It's actually quite different from the one where at the end of the day, there were three channels broadcasting the news and they were saying more or less the same things. That's not how it works right now. And I am not convinced that most of the people who are running for elected office or even the political technologists fully understand what a dramatic and powerful shift that ends up being. So what are you working on most urgently? So what I'm working on most urgently is social media that actually tries to be good for us. So one of the things that I've been very struck by is what I've started calling the local problem. A lot of folks in politics sort of say, uh, well, it can't be fixed at the federal level, but at least it works at local levels. My city works reasonably well. My state works reasonably well. There I can have an influence. I find myself spending a lot of time with Danielle Allen, a friend of mine who is running for governor in the state of Massachusetts, who sort of feels like Massachusetts might be fixable and, and she can bring the ideas to the table to do it. The trick is some of these local spaces devolve into viciousness very, very quickly. People who study things like Nextdoor, um, which is this social network essentially organized around neighborhoods, that's one of the most phenomenally racist spaces that people have sort of documented online. It's incredibly hostile to people of color. It's incredibly hostile to people outside of those spaces. So if we have this hope for these local spaces, why are we so often doing so badly? And how do we defend these local spaces against the influx of national politics? Right now we see school board politics sort of becoming national scale COVID or critical race theory politics. I'm building really small social networks that are really heavily moderated. So I'm working on a social network called Small Town. Right now it exists in the town of Amherst, Massachusetts. You can use it to discuss whatever issue happens to be coming before the town board meeting in the next week or two. You can't talk about anything else. You want to talk about the Supreme Court nomination? No, sorry. You're going to be moderated out because that actually isn't the town of Amherst. But if you want to talk about whether or not North Pleasant Street should be made one way so that we have a, a safer time getting into Kendrick Park, 
that's what the network's for. So the goal is not to replace Facebook. No one's going to give up their social life to, to have all their sociability on this network. But that's not the point. The point is that there might be dozens of these spaces that have very specific rule sets for very specific sorts of conversations. The rules for this conversation are it's hyper-local. It's focused on the issues that the town is facing at that point. We expect you to have a strong connection to the town of Amherst, and we expect you to follow the rules, which are pretty straightforward about staying on topic. My vision is that maybe we move towards social media that has dozens of these networks, that has a lot of these different systems that aren't one size fits all, aren't anything goes except for these very single bright lines, but have very specific purposes to it. The purpose behind Amherst Talks, the purpose behind Small Town is to try to make local government more accessible to people who don't have time to go to those meetings. But you could figure out how to build networks where the focus is meet your neighbors. You could have networks where the focus is increase the diversity of perspectives in your social network and encounter other ways that that people think about things. You could have networks where the goal is to be a support group for people who need it and who need each other's support. I think it's really important that we don't just have one size fits all, that we have these spaces in which we can interact and that we can try engineering and hacking these spaces to have different types of conversations. I am sort of stunned at how much work has been done academically and how little work has been done practically on thinking about how we talk to one another. The tools that are out there that most of us use are open to the point where they're very, very easily abused. They become toxic very, very quickly. And they're not really thinking hard about what makes a good conversation. And the reason for that, of course, is that they're simply trying to get as many eyeballs as possible. It would be amazing to have a wave of people thinking through what it means to have a healthy conversation and to design spaces for those healthy conversations. I've talked to a lot of people who are working hard on letting people talk to each other. They are not necessarily building social networks to do that. They may have done moderated Facebook groups or sit in on top of other things, but, but moderating and being careful about who is allowed in or not. What is different about small town and why does it make sense to do it on a separate platform? The reason to do it on a separate platform is that you simply don't have the control on someone else's platform. Your moderated Facebook group is in the midst of the algorithmic Facebook feed that is pushing you in one direction while moving in another direction. It's probably the same reason that we don't hold church in the shopping mall, right? You know, we have different spaces for different conversations because it's a way of signaling that we're going to engage in different behavior under different social norms. So my work is really around this question of, you know, I don't know that that small town is the particular solution to the problem. What I'm hoping is that the architecture, which is you have one tool that lets you look at all of your different social networks, the existing ones like Twitter and Facebook, new ones like small town, and gives you more control over them. 
and that there are many small social networks out there where people are taking responsibility for the rule set. They're taking responsibility for the moderation. Some of these networks are self-governing. If you're a participant in it, maybe you are taking on the moderation on the rules. It's that ecosystem that I'm interested in building out. And the reason that I think it's going to work very differently is that we have evidence of it working very differently on some small scales. We have evidence coming out of things like Reddit, where carefully moderated subreddits are able to have very different conversations than the ones where everything goes. And we have a lot of experiments with communities who have built their own media spaces because existing tools didn't work for them of having healthy, supportive conversations, bringing them towards their goals. So I'm trying to figure out not, you know, just how to build a great local civic space. That's kind of a small piece of it. It's that larger equation of what happens if it's not just Facebook running the world, it's the 50 different groups for the 50 different communities that I'm part of. And 20 of them, I've got a leadership role in sort of making sure that that conversation takes place the way that I want it to. I think that's a much more human way for the digital public sphere to work. What are the early returns on that? The early returns are very early. Um, You know, we've got small town running in Amherst. It's been useful. You get inputs from people who don't necessarily make it to town meeting. We have town selectmen who are, are reading the network and sort of bringing in some of those comments into the discussions. We did an early experiment with this tool called Gobo. This is the, the synthesis tool. It's the tool that lets you sort of look across all the different networks I think people are excited about the idea of having control over the algorithms that sort of gives them more control over what shows up in their Facebook feed. The The truth is, um, at least in the first version of it, it was too hard to use and too hard to tune your feed. We're trying to build a version now that sort of lets you kind of like build a trusted third party. So if you want news that you have high confidence in, maybe you let the BBC set up a set of filters and say, we trust these voices. Give me more of that in my feed. The first one we're building, uh, amusingly enough, is called Gobo Doggo. It's very, very simple. It just looks at your social media and tries to decide if there's an adorable picture of an animal in it or not. So you can turn up the amount of adorable animals, or I suppose if you want it, you could block adorable animals. I don't know why you'd want to try and do that. But it's an architectural strategy. It's a strategy that in many ways is is much older. It's much closer to how the internet operated before the web when our dominant mode of conversation was a a network called Usenet and the other dominant form of conversation were email lists. It's an internet that works a lot more that way. It's also in some ways very future looking. A lot of the conversations that the the crypto kitties are having around Web3 are around this idea of how do we ensure that Zuckerberg doesn't, as a single figure, control some huge part of the public discourse. This is a way to get there that doesn't require you to financialize everything and, and issue tokens. It, it relies more on volunteerism than it does on financialization. But but the end goal is pretty darn similar, which is highly decentralized networks. 
well, I, I think I could talk to you about this kind of stuff all day. I think I've presumed enough upon your time, though. And so I just want to thank you for that. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? No, we've, we've been all over the map, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, but I think you're right. I think I should probably uh, upload my syllabus so that when I teach on Monday, my students know what we're actually going to learn about. Fair enough. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, anything else you want to say? No, I'm good. Thank you. That was Ethan Zuckerman. Ethan is at ethanzuckerman.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.